We'll be looking this morning at 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Let's take just a minute to pray. Our Father, we come now to Your divinely inspired Word. God, we believe and know that You have given us the Scripture so that You can communicate with us so that you can reveal yourself to us and your will, the way of salvation, all that we need to know for life and godliness. So we gather, God, to hear what you would say to us from these verses. Please, God, don't don't let anything in me get in the way of you communicating with your people. Any of my own flaws and sins and wickedness, God, cleanse me that I might be a vessel fit for your service. Speak clearly by the power of your spirit that we may not just hear, but understand and be changed. Do it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Rolling Stone magazine, Chris Heath had a discussion about religion with movie star Brad Pitt. In regard to religion, this is what Brad Pitt had to say. I would call it oppression because it stifles any kind of personal freedom. I dealt with a lot of that and my family would diametrically disagree with me. Let me give you an example. This is what Brad Pitt said about the story of the prodigal son. This is a story which says if you go out and try to find your own voice, Find what works for you, what makes sense for you, then you're going to be destroyed and you will be humbled and you will not be alive again until you come home to the Father's ways. So this is Brad Pitt's philosophy. Don't tell me how to live. I want to live life my own way. It's true that Christianity doesn't advocate living any way you want to. It's true. There are guidelines within the Christian religion. There are rules and there are regulations. There are restraints for the life of a believer. But here's my question. Does that make Christianity oppressive? Does Christianity stifle people's freedom? It's really important that you understand why we don't tell people live life any way you want to. Do what works. Do what makes sense for you. We don't preach that message and there's a very good reason. And it's not because it's oppressive or we're trying to stifle their freedom. There's a reason we don't practice or promote living life your own way. And this morning we're going to find out what it is. 2 Peter chapter 2. This morning we'll begin halfway through verse 10 and go all the way down through verse 16. In chapter 2, Peter has been warning his readers about false teachers that are in their midst. He is warned of their destructive teaching, their ungodly influence, and their certain judgment. Well, in our text we're going to look at this morning, Peter's going to continue to paint a picture of these false teachers. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. 2 Peter 2, beginning halfway through verse 
10. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones. Whereas angels who are greater in strength and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, blaspheming where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering unrighteousness as the wages of their unrighteousness. Considering it a pleasure to revel in the daytime, they are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery and enticing sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, they are accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own lawlessness, for a mute donkey speaking out with a voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Please be seated. This morning, as we see what these verses reveal about these false teachers, it will become very clear why we don't promote living life your own way. And we can summarize what these verses tell us about these false teachers using three words. Here's the first word, arrogant. Arrogant. I want you to notice what it says halfway through verse 10. Peter refers to these as daring and self-willed. These words both kind of have the implication of arrogance to them. To be daring means to arrogantly ignore any danger or risk. This is not courage. This is somebody who, who is ignoring risk and danger because they don't think they're in any risk or danger. It's arrogance. They think they're above it. And self-will just means they're only concerned with what they want. So, so they... He ref, he's talking specifically about an action they're taking here. Look what it says. Daring and self-willed, they do not tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones. Glorious ones here is a reference to angels. Exalted beings. They could be uh, evil angels or they could be heavenly angels, but in either case, they're supernatural beings, celestial beings. And what he says here is they blaspheme these angels. In other words, they insult or disregard these spiritual beings. And what they're doing, they're in arrogance. Within them, there's this Arrogance that assumes that there is no spiritual power that is any threat to them. Are you with me? They're disregarding or dismissing the idea of spiritual reality. Like there's absolutely no spiritual reality that needs to be of concern to them. And they're doing something that the scripture says even angels themselves won't do. Verse 11. Whereas angels who are greater in strength and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. This is what he's saying. Look, even, even the, the angels of heaven 
won't bring judgment against evil angels because they recognize there is a spiritual power that has to be considered. Let me give you an example. Jude is one chapter, verse 9. This is what it says. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses, but did not, uh, did not dare pronounce against him a blaspheming judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, even the archangel Michael would not dismiss other spiritual beings as having no power, having no authority, being no threat. Are you with me? Yet these arrogant, boastful people in the church would just dismiss these spiritual powers, these spiritual realities as if they didn't even exist. Verse 12 tells us why. Blaspheming where they have no knowledge. You see that? Their arrogance is born of ignorance. They are ignorant of spiritual power and authority and therefore they take it lightly. They completely dismiss it. Now I want you to look back at verse 10 for a minute. What Peter's saying about them dismissing this spiritual reality is connected to what he said in verse 10. Notice it says they despise authority. You see that? He's specifically speaking of spiritual authority. In other words, these false teachers despised people who wanted to try to tell them how they should live according to God. Any spiritual authority, they dismissed it. They disregarded it. Here's why. Because they, they utterly dismissed spiritual reality. In other words, they didn't see that there was any spiritual authority over them. Are you with me? They so disregarded spiritual things that they didn't believe there was any spiritual authority over them to begin with. Now, I want you to think about this with me. They disregard spiritual reality. And if you disregard the reality of spiritual things, what you're saying is there is no unseen God who has authority over me. You get it? If you dismiss the reality of the spiritual realm, the reality of spiritual power, you're dismissing the fact that there's a God who is over you. You ever heard of sovereign citizens? You ever heard that term? There are people in the country who call themselves sovereign citizens. This is what the FBI says about them. They are an anti-government extremist group who believe that even though they physically reside in this country, they are separate or sovereign from the United States. They claim they are not subject to government statutes and laws unless they willingly consent to be. They believe the, the courts have no jurisdiction over people. They reject most forms of taxation as, as illegitimate. They, they don't believe in social security numbers or vehicle registrations or driver's licenses. It is an arrogant disregard of authority. They think they can live in the country as sovereign citizens without being under the authority of the government. But you know what? Their disregard for authority does not change reality. Can I tell you that never once has the argument of sovereign citizens held up in court? Never. They disregard authority like they're not subject to it, but they are. 
See, this is what the false teachers were doing in regard to spiritual authority. They were saying we're not subject to spiritual authority. There is no authority. We are sovereign spiritual creatures. And so they would make light of angels, rather holy angels or evil angels. They would dismiss all spiritual power and authority in arrogance. Listen to me, friend. To dismiss or to disregard the reality of spiritual power and authority is both arrogant and foolish. But that's what they were doing. Now, where do you think this arrogant disregard for spiritual power and authority is going to lead? That leads us to the second word to describe these false teachers. Not only were they arrogant, they were animalistic. Like animals. Look at what it says in verse 12. But these... Like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct. Unreasoning animals. He's referring to wild animals, not so much domesticated animals, but the kind of animals you would hunt. Wild animals lack the capacity to think rationally like humans do. They don't reason out. They operate according to instinct. That's what he says here. They're creatures of instinct. In other words, animals are driven purely by feelings and desires. Think about this. He's saying these false teachers are like animals whose life is driven by a desire to feed and breed. That's what drives animals. Their concern is feeding and breeding. They operate purely on fleshly, right? Fleshly desires, carnal desires. And they do that because they're not spiritual beings. God made them that way. But that's exactly the way these false teachers were living. Disregard of spirituality. They were living like animals to feed and breed. Look at verse 13. Halfway through the verse. Considering it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. In other words, they make feeding their sinful desires an all-day affair. The idea the Bible teaches is that most people in that day that would pursue sinful desires like illegitimate sex and drunkenness, they usually did those kind of things at night and they worked during the day. But he said these people are so totally consumed with these evil desires that they make pursuing their sin an all-day affair. And most people are working, they're out chasing their passions. They don't wait till nighttime. Notice what else he says in verse 13. They are stains and blemishes, watch this, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you. Okay, here's what he's talking about. As they feast with you, you being the church, they feast with the church. The early church, if you go back and read in Acts chapter 2, the latter part of that chapter, it talks about how they gathered together and had their meals together. Okay, they would gather and eat a fellowship meal together and that meal would culminate in the Lord's Supper. They would share a full meal and at the end of that meal they would share the Lord's Supper. These were called love feasts. 
And this was part of the practice of the early church. We didn't invent dinner on the ground. They started doing that way, way, way back there. But what he's saying is here, when they gather with you for your love feast, they revel in their deceptions. What does that mean? What they were doing, they were deceiving you, he says, by making you think that they were gathering for a spiritual purpose. What they really were doing was gathering to feed their own appetite. They just were gathering for the food. They didn't care one thing about fellowship with believers and God's people. They, 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 they were just there for the groceries. This is what 1 Corinthians 11 verses 20 to 22, Paul's describing people just like this. This is what he says. Therefore, when you meet together in the same place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry and another is drunk. For do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. This is what Paul is rebuking. Some of them are gathering together and treating it like some carnal feast. It's supposed to be a spiritual celebration of the crucifixion and resurrection, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. But that's what he says, they're so carnal. Their life is all about pursuing these animalistic desires. And even when they gather for spiritual purposes, they're all in it for their own personal desires. Look at what it says in verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery. What's that mean? That means they can't even look at a woman without thinking about being in bed with her. Eyes full of adultery and unceasing sin. That means they have an insatiable appetite for sin. They have an appetite for sin that is never satisfied. Look at what it says next. Having a heart trained in greed. That word trained is, is a word that can be used in, of Discipline in athletics. Like someone trains their body. They discipline their body. Why? To enable them to perform at a certain level. What he's trying to say here is, these are people who have worked really hard to get really good at getting what they want. The word greed there simply means a desire to have more. It could be more money, more sex, more pleasure, more food more possessions. He said, man, they, they work hard. Like you might work hard at getting good at your job or work hard to get in good physical shape. No, what they work hard at is getting more. More of what satisfies their carnal desires, their sinful appetites. Notice what it says in verse 15, forsaking the right way. In other words, these people once knew better. They once knew that this was the wrong path. They once appeared to live a Christian life, but they have forsaken the way of Christ. They have abandoned the right way. Look what it says next. They have gone astray having followed the way of Balaam, 
the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You may remember the story of Balaam from Numbers chapter 22 to 24. Balaam is the guy whose donkey could talk. Okay, let me just briefly remind you of the story. Balak was the king of Moab, and he hired Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel because he didn't want Israel to overthrow his kingdom. He knew Israel was large and had grown strong, and to keep them from conquering him, he wanted Balaam to curse them. And Balaam tried to, but he couldn't. God wouldn't let him. And at one time, God caused Balaam's donkey to speak to him. To warn him of the danger of what he was doing. Going against God by trying to curse God's people. And he was just doing it because he wanted the money. Balaam should have known you don't try to curse God's people. And he would have. Look at verse 16. He received a rebuke for his lawlessness. How? A mute donkey spoke with the voice of a man and restrained the madness of the prophet. In other words, the only thing that kept him from cursing God's people was God used a donkey to open his eyes to the reality of what he was doing. There's more to that story we could, we could look at. But here's the point. They've gone the way of Balaam simply means they've gone the way of chasing greed. You see what he says? Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. He loved money and he didn't care if it came from ungodly sources. If he had to get it by ungodly means, he just wanted the money. That's the way these um, false teachers are. Here's the thing I need you to think about. They had these sinful appetites, right? It takes money to feed those sinful appetites. Booze and feasts and prostitutes, all that cost money. So they loved anything they could do. They didn't care what they had to do to get a dollar to feed their sinful appetites. Can you see the picture of them just being animalistic? Just living like animals who driven purely by the desire to feed and breed. And it's not enough that they themselves abandoned the right way. Look at verse 14. They entice unstable souls. In other words, they're not satisfied with going after this wicked lifestyle themselves. They want other people to join them. They have abandoned the way of Christ in order to chase after sin. And that's not enough. They are trying to get other people to abandon the way of Christ to chase after sin. It says they entice unstable souls. This is a reference to people who are, are either recent converts or immature believers. They, they haven't been established in the faith long enough to really have built up the resistance. And they're easily deceived. Tell them, look, you don't have to abide by all those rules. You can still live the way you want to. You can do what you want to. You don't have to do all that. And they go after the people that are weak, spiritually immature, and don't know better. They see these people living and chasing after this sin. And they're still a 
desire within them. A, there's still a humanness in them that still is attracted to that lifestyle. And, and it, they can easily be deceived into pursuing sin. And I want you to notice what it says there in verse uh, 13. Look what it says. He calls them stains and blemishes. You see that? Verse 13, they are stains and blemishes. A stain is a dirty spot like on a pure white garment. It's a spot that tarnishes it. And a blemish is, it could either be a dirty spot or most likely it refers to a physical deformity. Here's the idea. The way they live it, it, it is a dirty spot on the purity of the church. It makes the body of Christ look deformed. Are you with me? Their animalistic lifestyle not only entices the weak in faith, not only tempts them to walk in sin, it brings disrepute on the church of the living God because they're still associated with the church. You remember he said there that they're feasting with you, verse 13. They're still going to gather with the church, but living this ungodly lifestyle. Are you starting to get the picture? These false teachers disregard spiritual reality and they live only to satisfy their sinful desires. They live to feed and breed like animals. Now, where do you think that's going to lead? That brings us to the third word we can use to describe these people. They're not only arrogant and animalistic, they are accursed. Go back to verse 12. He compares the fate of these false teachers with the fate of these wild animals he was mentioning. These, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed. You see that? Born to be captured and killed. He said they're like animals who are hunted, trapped, and then killed. Now look at the end of verse 12. They will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. What does he mean? He means just like wild animals that are hunted, captured, and killed, these people who live this way, that's their destiny. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be captured by the wrath of God and be destroyed just like these wild animals. In other words, if you live like a wild animal, you will die like a wild animal. But that's not the end of the story. I want you to look down with me at verse uh, 13. Suffering unrighteousness as the wages of their unrighteousness. In other words, when he talks about them being destroyed, he says they're going to suffer unrighteousness. You could translate that evil. They're going to suffer evil as the wages of their evil. The evil he's referring to is eternal destruction. 
let me say it to you this way. They're going to reap what they sowed. What, what does the Bible say? If you sow to the flesh, right, you reap corruption. What's the saying? If you sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Look at verse 14, the end of the verse. They are accursed children. You see that? What that means is they are under God's curse. To be accursed children, it means they are part of the group that are under God's curse. What does it mean to be under God's curse? There's a verse that tells us, we don't have to guess, Matthew 25, 41 tells us what it means to be under God's curse. This is what it says. Then he will say also to those on his left, depart from me accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. To be accursed means to be a part of that group that is destined to be thrown into the eternal fire that was created for the devil and his angels. I want you to get the picture. These are people in the church who disregard spiritual things. They disregard spiritual reality. They, they disregard spiritual authority and they live like wild animals. They live carnal, worldly lives. And because of that, they are under the curse of God and they will face eternal damnation. Now, I want you to listen to what I'm telling you. If you are living your life your own way, living to satisfy the desires of your human nature with disregard for God's authority over your life, let this be a warning to you. If you live like an animal, you will die like an animal. Are you beginning to see why? We can't live any way we want to. Do, do you see the reason for the rules and the guidelines and the restraints in our lives? Don't these verses make it crystal clear? Those who arrogantly dismiss spiritual reality and live to satisfy the desires of the flesh are under God's curse. That's the teaching of this text. I want you to listen to that again. Those who arrogantly dismiss spiritual reality and live to satisfy the desires of the flesh are under God's curse. You see, when you dismiss spiritual reality, you are dismissing the reality that there is an unseen God who has authority over your life. And that is eternally fatal. Here's the thought that I want you to take away from this message. This is the thought I want to lodge in your brain. 
I want you to walk out of here with this ringing in your ears. If you don't live under God's authority, you will die under God's curse. If you don't live under God's authority, you will die under God's curse. I want you to think about this. That godless lifestyle that leads to eternal destruction, that lifestyle is a result of rejecting the authority of God. It's no different than a criminal. The crime that he commits that lands him in jail, that crime is a result of disregarding the authority of law. He disregards the law and does whatever he wants to, and as a result of that, it lands him in jail. The godless disregard the authority of God and do whatever they want to, and it lands them in hell. The same idea. So what is our response to all of that? Isn't it crystal clear? Submit to the authority of God. Submit to the authority that is above and beyond any authority in this world. Now, let me be just really, really clear about something. Nobody can submit to God's authority until they submit to God's Son. Let me explain what I mean. The first step in submitting to God's authority is repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone for forgiveness and salvation. And here's why. To live under God's authority means to live with God as your king. It means you're in his kingdom, living under his rule. Well, there's only one way into his kingdom, and that's through faith in his son. So to live with God as your king under the rule and authority of God, you have to come through his son. There's only one way into the kingdom, and it's through the son. So we're not telling people, be godly so you can be saved. No, no, no. We're telling people be saved so you can be godly. The first step to living under God's authority is coming to his son in repentance and confession and faith. But what about those of us who have already trusted Christ and we've already been born again into the kingdom of God? How do we submit to God's authority? Well, we do it by submitting to God's word. Because... It is by his word, by means of the scripture, that God exercises authority in and through and over his church. To put it simply, we obey God's word. The way we submit to God's authority is to live our lives the way God's word instructs us to. Listen, that's the reason for the guidelines and the rules and the restraints. Because we live according to those is to live under God's authority. I'm going to make a suggestion to you. I think we all need the constant reminder that as Christians, we are duty bound to live under the authority of our Lord. Amen. You are duty. If you're not living under his authority, then he's not your Lord. And I want to debunk 
some teaching that's been taught over the years. There are those who teach you can have Jesus as your Savior without having Him as your Lord. That is from the pits of hell. You can't have Jesus as Savior without having Him as Lord. That's people that want you to believe you can be saved and still live a godless life. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I don't care what you've been told. I don't care what you've been taught. It is absolutely wrong to believe that somebody can be genuinely saved but go through their whole life still living any way they want to. That is absolutely not true. Don't you believe that garbage? You'll end up in hell. I'm going to make a suggestion to you to remind you that as Christians, we're to submit to the authority of God. I think you should write Luke 6.46 in the front flyleaf of your Bible. If you don't like to write in your Bible, write it on a post-it note and put the post-it note in the front of your Bible. Why? What does Luke 6.46 say? It says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Every time you open your Bible, if you see that, you remember if I call Jesus Lord, then I'm supposed to do what he says. That reminds you that when you come to the house of God, you open your Bible to hear the preaching. You see that and you remember when I hear the word of God proclaimed, it's my duty to respond to it in obedience. When you open your Bible to have your quiet time to read your Bible in the morning, it reminds you that when God speaks to me through his word, it's my duty to obey. I'm to submit to the authority of my Lord. Not so that I can be saved, but because I am saved. Because I am under his authority. Why don't Christians promote living life your own way? Why the guidelines? Why the rules? Why the restraints? Simply this. If you don't live under God's authority, you'll die under God's curse. See, Brad, Pink, uh, Brad Pitt thinks Christianity is oppression. It's taking away people's freedom. It's making them slaves. That's his thought. But actually the opposite is true. People are already slaves. Don't you get it? People are slaves to sin and Satan and bound in the chains of the kingdom of death. And what we're calling people to do by submitting to the authority of God in Christ, we're calling them to escape the kingdom of death and enter the kingdom of life. We're not trying to oppress them. Listen, Christianity is not oppression, it's salvation. We walk in the way of Christ because that's the only way to eternal life. Every other way leads to eternal death. That's why the guidelines, that's why the rules, that's why the restraints to keep us walking in the narrow way that leads to life. Let's pray. <laughs>